Institute. And this morning, the topic of her presentation will be codependency. Sandra? I come to you with roots from the Johnson Institute. I'm glad Bob mentioned it because I remember that my first quest had to do with sitting in some groups at the National Council on Alcoholism in Kansas City, Missouri, being a family therapist there and getting a little funny mimeograph sheet by a man named Vernon Johnson about everybody doesn't have to hit a low bottom. I found myself some four years later in Minneapolis, Minnesota, trying to find Vernon Johnson and the Johnson Institute, and they've grown considerably. They now had printed material and no longer were using the mimeograph machine. They said to me, I don't think you better stop here. I think you guys all better keep just trucking right along and go over to Mandan, North Dakota at Hartview. So I come from Hartview. I come from Johnson Institute. My heart is now in Minnesota as I now live here. My roots are as a grateful member of Al-Anon, who also, I think, I feel very fortunate. I was also a trained therapist as I began my own recovery process. So in many ways, I've been very fortunate in wearing two hats. And what to do today was my dilemma. I spend most of my time now training therapists in the Twin Cities to work with dependent relationships or throughout Minnesota and some other places. So I don't do as much talking as I used to do all around the state in AA and Al-Anon groups, and I, I always realize I miss it. It's sort of like going back to, to my tribe. So what I've decided to do today is talk as my tribe rather than as a professional. If you want to know a little bit more about what I think about codependency professionally, I've got some pamphlets out in my trunk. I just remembered I'll bring them in and they can be at the back table. But I've decided instead to talk, as the big book says, to talk about our story. And I'd like to talk about my story in terms of codependency. I don't personally like the word because I've had to spend the last 10 years of my life trying to define it and explain it. And it seems like a whole lot of trouble. And if we could just have a simpler word, I'd love it. Sharon just shared with me that last year they had a conference with 32 professionals from all of the United States. They brainstormed in small groups for many, many hours trying to find a different word. And at the end of the evening, they voted for codependency. <laughs> so the DSM-4 committee is also studying about the inclusion of it in the DSM-4 manual, the diagnostic manual. And if they do, as Sharon says, and I've heard otherwise also, it's going to be called codependency. So I'm going to keep it. Codependency. Well, one way to talk about it is in joke form. At least in the Twin Cities, we now have the word around enough. We have jokes. One of the jokes is if you're a codependent, and you're drowning, as you go down for the third time, everybody else's life passes before you. <laughs> it's also hit the street. Last summer I was somehow featured in a little uh, punk newspaper we have where people started coming to me with green hair and silver chains. And I really knew that I didn't always have that sort of appeal maybe to the green hair, silver chain crowd. And I thought, what is going on? And I said, how did you hear about me? And they said, well, I read about you in that newspaper, you know, where you were talking all about this codependency. And I knew it had hit the streets. So I said, well, what's the street definition for codependency? And they said, oh, you guys are all called intensity junkies. Well, there's a bit of truth in all of those kinds of funny and street definitions. And I do think there is an intensity about people that do have dependent relationship patterns or codependency. But it is beyond just dependency, because I have people say, what's wrong with being dependent in relationships? I sort of like to lean on my my family, and I like to have them lean on me. 
And I say, yeah, I agree. We're only talking about dependency until it gets, and if it gets abusive, self-abusive, or if the person begins to get self-neglectful, or if we find ourselves going, look at all I've done for you. You owe me. Then we have to say, oh, maybe this dependency that we're talking about is beginning to go into the realm of not being a healthy kind of dependency, but we're dealing with something else. I, I, I think that I, well, I know I used to get up before audiences 10 years ago and say it's just about women. Only women have this pattern. I no longer believe that. Frankly, at the Dependency Institute, we now have half as many men's groups as we do women's groups, and I've been doing women's groups for a long time. I used to think it was just about adults. I no longer believe that. I know it's very small children can have this pattern to the point where, where they engage in self-neglect. I've worked as I used to be a former primary school teacher, and I have gone personally to elementary schools and talked with teachers of first graders about their difficulty in concentrating and trying to learn to read. Why? Because they were so preoccupied about what was going on back home. As Bob has said, many people have a hard time leaving home psychologically. Talking with the children, talking with the teachers, it's amazing how just simply calling the phenomenon what it is can often help and encourage that child to be able to concentrate enough to learn to read. In the Twin Cities, we sort of get overboard, I think, about a lot of stuff. And I think we sort of have, frankly, in the last couple of years about codependency. I'm hearing such exotic things as everybody in the world's a codependent. Well, I agree with that, personally. I, I was in Detroit, Michigan, and somebody brought me a cup of coffee, and she said, I've got to stop doing that. And I said, why? And she says, because that's my codependency. I thought she was just being nice, you know. <laughs> so I think the word has gotten, has gotten sort of misused, at least in this part of the country. But I do think there's a real pattern. I know there are people that die of this. I've worked in the field of alcoholism and in alcoholic treatment centers for many, many years, and my colleagues were always recovering alcoholics who, who were very focused on helping alcoholic people recover, as I was also. But they said, Sandra, when you take your time out and you work over there with those codependents, that's not as serious as what we're doing, because this is about life and death. For many years, I didn't say anything. In the last few years, I started to say, what I'm talking about is also about life and death. I've now been around long enough to know that I know people that have died of this pattern. I know people whose lives have been ruined by this pattern not being intervened on and by these people not getting some help. So when I'm talking about this from at least my vantage point, I believe we're talking about a very serious phenomenon. First thing I look for if I'm trying to look at my own codependency or other people's is I start to look for the tendency of surface maturity, which is Bob talked about that some. I start to look for people that are so serious, that are so competent, that are so terribly adult. And I, as you notice, I call it surface maturity. Because I believe we're the people, and I am certainly one of them, because as I will share with you, I am a chronic low-bottom codependent. I not only, I first got interested in this because I almost lost my own life from it. And so I first, first personally got interested in it in terms of myself. And I didn't do anything professionally in it for several years. But then I began to get interested in it professionally because it seemed like there were a whole lot of people not addressing our issues. But the focus never seemed to sort of come on on this pattern to the extent that, that we needed it. So I'm talking about surface maturity, and I'm talking about the tendency to smile, because that's what I did all my life. You see, I smiled all my life. I smiled if I was happy. I smiled if I was angry. I smiled if I was hurt. I smiled if I was sad. I did that as a very small child. You couldn't tell by looking at me 
what was going on on the inside. My insides and my outsides never matched. I had a lady one night came up in, in an AA club out of state and she said, listen, Sandra, now I know what's going on before I took the first drink. She said, I have something else in my life too. And she said, but I've never smiled my whole life. She said, I've just sort of frowned all my life. Everybody talks about it a lot in my family. And I said, I think it's the same thing, isn't it? The insides and the outsides still don't match. Along with that tendency, usually, for that service maturity, goes a very high tolerance for inappropriate behavior. Now, I've been around a long time. My, when I first came into this program, my hair wasn't even a tad gray. So I've been around a long time. And in those days, it was all women in Eleanor. And it was all, almost all men in AA. And we sort of divided ourselves in those clubs. And one thing we were known for in Al-Anon was our high tolerance for inappropriate behavior. And we would sit around and we would talk about the inappropriate behavior that we had observed in this world and in our own homes. And we would talk about often the fact that we could certainly just have a half a drink. And then we could just go on from there. In other words, that very high tolerance for inappropriate behavior often leads to moral superiority. Now, in those days, as I said, all women in Al-Anon and all men in AA and the Al-Anon society I was in, they called us the Alabags. (laughs) Now, there's a little sexism there, but even more so, I think there's some sort of protest about the moral superiority about the tremendous high tolerance that we are often long-suffering about. We are very proud in those days, at least, of talking about being a doormat. This is one of the issues, I think, of codependent, codependent people. We either look at ourselves from a very high ideal. We report ourselves as something next to Mary Madonna and see ourselves that way, or we see ourselves as a piece of junk. I think we have real difficulty sort of assessing and seeing ourselves from some sort of realistic kind of base. And I think one of the first parts of recovery for us is begin to get realistic about who I am. Now, along with that high tolerance, usually goes a lot of no-talk rules, which Bob talked about. I don't, most of us, without exception, have lived in families where there's all kinds of things you don't talk about. I was raised coming home every day. My father would say, how is it today? I'd say, well, it's okay. It's not okay. Some of you may even know what we were talking about. Very few people in this world would. What we were talking about is whether the red jug of liquid tranquilizers that was always on us before the day of Milton, or that were always on the refrigerator door, whether my mother was in bed because she'd used them and overused them and abused them, or whether she was up in the kitchen. But we never said that. We always said it. How is it today? You see, I learned my codependent patterns not at my mother's knee, but at my father's knee. He was one of the best codependents I have ever met, and a dear, sweet soul. But I observed him, and I modeled after him in, in the family tradition. Now, along with this, has to go a lot of denial of reality if you're calling things it. And I became so good at it when I raised my own family, I look now back with some embarrassment. I can remember one hot day in Kansas City, Missouri, in the kitchen I was cooking. And I had all these little preschoolers in the house because it was real hot there. And you from there know that in August. And all of a sudden, Sunday afternoon, there was this real loud crash at the other end of the house. And I went, the kids came and got me and said, come quick, come quick, come see what's wrong with Daddy. And the time I had walked from the living room to the study, I had it all together. They said they would wind around the body that was 
passed out cold on the wooden floor. And they said, uh, what's wrong, Mom? And I got down on the floor, and I said something I thought was so suave, like, your father got real tired. So he decided to sort of lay down here on this floor and take a little nappy. Now, if we just be real quiet and tiptoe away, he'll wake up from his nappy. I thought it was wonderful. I mean, I was protecting my children. I was helping them to grow up and not feel bad. Well, the only part, a couple parts I forgot. One thing, they were real short, and they were down there on the floor, and they could smell them. <laughs> our kids and our dogs always know what's going on. If we're not so. <laughs> they didn't say anything, because they knew they weren't supposed to. But they looked down at him, and then they looked up at me. And I didn't want to remember that look until I got into recovery. They looked at me like... We know what's wrong with him. What's wrong with you? And do you know a lot of times that's our family's questions? That's the family question. What's wrong with you? If you think people lay down on the floors and do nappies and, and fall out of their chairs, what's wrong with mom? I since then have known many, many stories of people who shared with me and said, did you know that my husband didn't come home more than two nights a week for over two years and the children never knew it? Because I kept the bedroom door closed and said, shh, daddy's sleeping. Be quiet. We've got some fantastic ways that we made up reality, that we denied reality, that we excused reality, and we made it up according to some sort of ideal that we thought we should. Now, along with this is a tendency to become very preoccupied, and that's the grounding joke, very preoccupied with somebody else's behavior. In other words, I taught my children as my father had taught me. And we simply watched their father breathe in and breathe out. We watched him eat and not eat. We watched him go to work and not go to work. We watched him talk and not talk. We simply watched. And we all watched. Working with alcoholic populations for years, people used to say, gosh, I feel so paranoid. And I said, that's because you've really been watched. You don't have to just think you have been. You have been. True. And we always look at we're a little more manipulative than that. But we watch. I taught my children to do what my father had taught me to do. Simply watch and watch and watch and watch. Now, in doing that, a person becomes very self-neglectful because it's a full-time job. I used to have people in treatment say, Sandra, just wait till you meet my wife. She's the smartest thing you've ever met in your whole life. I say, how do you know? He said, People would say things like, listen, over the phone, she could tell whether I was drinking or not. And she'd, I'd just call up and say, hello, honey, and she'd say, you've been drinking again. I said, no, just think of this. She's got a Ph.D. in you. And she watches your eyelid get a little droopy. She watches the little beads on the forehead. She watches the thick tongue. She watches. And she's so good at it, she can tell every little tiny change. Now, what does that do to the person who's devoting their time and their life being addicted, and I think it fits, to another person? I think of it as any addiction. I call this my moth around the light bulb theory. 
of like that addictive agent is like a light bulb and people just simply become mesmerized by it and ma- like a magnetic field and just simply circle all their lives around it. And pretty soon it's like my friend, my first sponsor, Mary, said, you know, it would have been such a beautiful starry night last night as I sat on my back porch if only Paul were there. Because Mary could no longer enjoy the stars because her addictive agent was not there. And as we become more and more preoccupied, we do less and less for ourselves. We take pride sometimes and oftentimes in our self-neglect. And as we do this, sometimes we say, and people tell us, for Lord's sakes, don't get so focused on that kid. Don't get so focused on that spouse. Don't get so focused. You've got to get a life of your own. Go jog. Go do others. Go bowl. Remember, we're intensity junkies. Oftentimes what we do is we do a love shift. And we'll say, I'm not going to do that anymore, but now I'm going to do this. (laughs) And this we get just as addicted to. Many of us will turn off on a spouse and quit watching and quit being preoccupied and we'll become super mom and super dad. We'll quit being super mom and super dad and then we'll love shift simply into another kind of addictive relationship. In Bob's example with the marriages, the many marriages and the many addictive relationships, just repeated and repeated and repeated. Now, I'm talking somewhat about progression because I do think there are stages of codependency. I think for some people, some of these things that we're talking about are just kind of uncomfortable and a a bit painful. I I think for some people, as we progress, they become life-threatening. And I think in that progression, sometimes what people do is they're doing those love shifts, they get real busy. And all of a sudden, real, real busy. One time I was, I, I felt very honored to be uh, the head of an inpatient program in codependency that we had in the hospital. And the psychiatrist, <laughs> uh, the first person we had on the unit, he came and he said, <laughs> he said, we can't admit this person to the hospital. He said, she's the chairman of the, mel- of the county mental health board that I serve on. <laughs> what, she's my peer. Well, what is this? She's very functional. And I said, beware of us and our functionality. Beware of our competencies. Beware of our looking so put together. Well, I said, give us four days. Give us four days. He said, okay. At the end of, she wanted to be there very badly. And at the end of four days, he said, I get it. Because oftentimes we are paradoxical. We look so put together. At this time in my life, when that symptom was the greatest in my life, what I simply did was I decided to run for a very large political office. Thank God not here. Anyway, a very large, very embarrassing uh, political office. I did very, very well. I was in TV twice a week, and I was in the newspaper most nights, and and I was going to solve the world, uh, at least that city's problems. It was a big city, and I was the first woman candidate. And a lot of people had come to me to do that because of my competency level. My problem was I could not run my own life. My problem was that my own life was in disarray, but I still could pull it together to get out there and try to run the city. And many of us do this. We're the Sunday school superintendent, the presidents of the PTA. We do a lot of things, and we're terribly self-neglectful oftentimes as we do it. Accompanying this is a very sad sort of symptom, and I mention it because it's a source of deep shame for many of us, many, many years into recovery. And that's the idea of rage. I'm not talking about angry now. I'm talking about rage. Remember that high tolerance I talked about? Accompanying that high tolerance for many of us 
at a certain time in this progression, I believe, then something happens that I'm going to call tolerance breaks. The steam builds and builds and builds, and this highly tolerant person all of a sudden starts just going boom. Now, I didn't think I had those. I went, I happened to end up man-ban in the days when they didn't do family stuff hardly. They had you there for a week, and they kept me because we were kind of like treatment bumps. They just let some of us hang around because they thought we needed something, and we did. So I was sort of hanging around there, part of the treatment center, 47 Alkies, Junkies, and me. And in my group, I heard a lot about physical abuse and a lot about rage. And a guy in my group had killed somebody. And, and, and I thought, that's the only thing I've heard that I can't identify with. The only part of it. Because, you see, I was part of the same nuclear policy committee. I was anti-war. My, my, my son did not even play with toy guns and all that sort of thing. And I never spanked my children. And I did not believe in abuse. And so I thought, well, I can't identify with that. I was a year out and into Al-Anon. And one night a lady came in and she was she was crying and screaming and we didn't know her. So we pushed her in the door. And she said, I just hit my husband and he fell down and he hit his head on the sofa and he's bleeding on the carpet and he may be dead and I don't care. <laughs> I think that's called a tolerance break. Anyway, so um, I didn't know anything about any of that then and I was just shocked. And, and the room didn't seem to be as shocked as I was. And, and people, somebody went to find out if he was okay. And people started talking. I mean, well, I'd never heard an Al-Anon meeting in that day and age talk. And people started saying, yeah, I get real mad at my kids sometimes. And I hit them too hard still. And yeah, I get just really, really angry with my family. And I just verbally abuse everybody in sight. And da 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 Wow. I thought, oh, it doesn't fit. I went home, had a dream, and next morning I woke up. I thought, gee, I remember one time that almost might have happened in my life. My husband was standing at the top of the stairs. It was midnight, and Saturday night the banjo band was going to play at the levee. And he said, I think I'm going to go. We couldn't walk. He was so drunk. First time in my life I ever said, no, you're not. I thought, I can't let him get in the car. Well, right there, some of you know I was insane. But anyway, I said, no, you're not. And he said, yes, I am. And he was weaving a lot. And just as he passed me, I went, oh, you. And he just sort of happened to fall down the stairs. Next week, I went back. Everybody's okay but me. The lady's okay. You know, everybody's okay. I was driving. I didn't say anything. Left the Alnon meeting. Driving home. 694. For those of you who know Minneapolis, there's a teen driving movie right there. And all of a sudden, my memory came back. And that's what I consider recovery from codependency. Our honest memories begin to return. And I came back, and what really happened is he was standing with his back to the stairs, and I took him by both shoulders, and I pushed him as hard as I could backwards down the entire flight of stairs. And I screamed at the top of my lungs, it serves you right, you son of a bitch, I hope you die. And that was the person I love the most in the world, and I'm pushing him down the stairs, and I'm glad. Now that scares me. To this day, that frightens me. Because I know that kind of rage is within me. I was so ashamed of that sort of anger and that sort of rage, I simply then repressed. I simply then would not deal with it. By this time, I have worked with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of codependent people. And that's one of the elements of shame. Not always the physical stuff, but at least the psychological and the verbal kinds of tolerance breaks that we tend to have. And we're so ashamed of them, we don't know what to do. And the first thing I say, we got to do is we got to say this. We beat and we get beaten. I have known a case of a woman, stone cold sober, who drew, drove her car head on into that of her, her boy, her husband and his girlfriend. 
I know of a person who left that treatment center early after only two weeks, the most darling little bubbly, bubbled-haired woman of 26 with beautiful little children married to a farmer. And two days later on my radio driving to work, it said so-and-so has been picked up. And she is now in Shakopee Prison because she just paid the undercover agent to the sheriff $500 to have him killed. There are serious consequences sometimes of this whole pattern. And there are serious kinds of suicide attempts that are not attempts and they work. We get out the knives and the guns and the baseball bats sometimes. If we're not in, in some neighborhoods, the cops call us, oh, there's another domestic. and others, we, we can keep it kind of undercover. But many times, codependent people, I find, have difficulty handling their rage. Handling those high tolerance times versus those tolerance breaks. As that begins to happen very often for many of us, and I tried to bring it up in Al-Anon. For four or five years, I was still doing it. I was still yelling. I was only, I was only yelling, but I was yelling at my children. And I would bring it up, and then they'd get quiet. And I thought, oh, my God, it's because I'm unique. They now laugh, because I've been in the same group now for many years, and they now laugh, and they say, you aren't unique. We just want to deal with it. None of us knew how to talk about that, so that's why we just got real quiet. And I think about this time, for many of us, we tend to get real rigid, and you've seen us that way. We get so black and white. Religion is the answer. What is the question? Love is the answer. What is the question? Read the read the whatever is the answer. What is the question? We we just are so foreclosed. We have tunnel vision. We're so righteous. We're so rigid, and we set people's teeth on edge. And as that rigidity increases, many of us end up in lots and lots and lots of MDs offices. And we've got all kinds of stress-related illnesses, lower back pain, colitis, ulcers, you know better than I do, migraine headaches, stress, mine was stress-related arthritis. And we begin to think we've got something physical, that's why I act the way I do. And we're just as puzzled as anybody else in the society usually about what's wrong, what's wrong. And at the end of this, I think, or at the bottom, and a low-bottom person, I think, in codependency does become oftentimes afflicted with clinical depression. And this was my bottom, was clinical depression. And I'm not talking just about getting down. I'm talking about becoming dysfunctional from clinical depression. I happened in Mandan, North Dakota, and to end up in a psych ward at St. Alexis Hospital from that treatment center. Every day, the gentleman came to see me with 32 years of sobriety, Mr. AA in the Twin Cities in Mandan. He was my counselor, and Dick came to see me every day and said, how you doing? And I'd say, well, I'm okay. He'd say, okay, and he'd leave. He didn't decide to do anything. I just learned to you know, play kings in the corner and make fudge and square dance. It was in North Dakota. We didn't do those things in Missouri. And at the end of five days, he said, well, that's okay. That's it. Now you can get out. And I said, well, what am I going to do? Because you see, what I had done is say, I don't know how, just like Bob's sister saying, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to belong. I have given and given and given, and I've tried to be good because most of us have a belief if I'm just good enough and I try hard enough, it'll all work out. And it's not. Life is not working out, and I don't know how to do it, and I quit. Somebody didn't give me a full manual. They got some of the pages missing or something. And this is it. I, with all my competencies and all my strength and all my, you know, whatever, nobody could believe it. Well, I could by then. That was it. 
All that maturity was exposed. I no longer looked mature to anybody, including myself. And he said, well, I don't know, Sandra. He said, you know, he said, the problem with this, he said, is uh, a lot of you people go in and out psych wards a lot with depression. He said, you know what? We don't know how to help you people. You know what I heard? You people. It's the first time I've ever been called you people. And I thought, do you mean there's possibility this could be something other people have done and have? That some of these things I felt done and said and believed are shared by other people in this world? And it never occurred to me before that I was not special and unique. And many of you are alcoholics had that same experience, I know. That I'm not special and I'm not unique. And that was my first hope. I, I knew that my tribe probably wasn't exactly the cream of the crop of running in and out and depressed a lot in terms of human beings. But at least there were some of us. And so I said, oh, I said, well, I don't want to do this. It's real nice here and everything, but I don't like the idea of being locked up. And I said, oh, Dick, I, I don't want to do that. And he said, well, you can go and commit suicide then. First honest man, by the way, I ever met. Never met anybody before in my whole life that I knew of. And uh, I said, well, I don't want to do that. He said, you think you do. That wiped the smile off my face that I mentioned at the first. Because, you see, I think I had gotten so out touch with my feelings. I think they were very right. And I was not even aware of my suicidal wishes. That scared me like nothing had ever scared me before. And I said, I won't do that either. And he said, well, I said, what else? He said, well, there's always recovery. I said, my God, I'll do that. And he looked at me and he said, I doubt it. He said, you're very good at this. He said, you've been in it all your life. And he said, I don't even know what it is for sure. He didn't use the word codependency. And he said, we don't know how to help you. He said, we really don't. Not to this extent. Al-Anon is wonderful. But for some of you, Al-Anon is not fast enough. Too slow for some of you. And he said, no, not well, honest. You know, he was right. As he said that, I thought, I'd like to pinch his nose off. How come he thinks I can't make it? Doesn't he know I'm a high achiever? And that I work hard. And I felt very angry with him. At the same time, he was writing another kind of way because I had a way to figure out how to kind of manipulate that treatment center. They had a red plaid carpet. I think they still do. Anyway, they had a red plaid carpet. And I thought, now if they push me here, I'll just kind of look kind of nervous. And now I'm a certified nut. And so they're just going to back off from me, right? So I'm going to go in, and who's going to be in charge? I am, right? Well, I knew that. Nobody ever bothered to tell me, at least in that day, I was in the sing-sing of all treatment centers in the United States. If you failed Minneapolis, they shipped you to Mandan. They used to threaten everybody with that. Isn't that true? In the olden days. And I was in sing-sing. And so I didn't mind groups. I just cried a lot. But uh, I used to go to lectures. And oh gee, for five years I've been speaking at treatment centers once a month for five straight years. I think it's my penance because I hated lectures and treatment. Just hate them. I mean, those people, they're just like I am. They don't. Come on, I used to sound like that. I used to look like that. I don't believe them. I didn't dare believe it. I was just scared to hope at that time. So I held myself in my chair and hated it. So I went to Dick and I said, Dick, I don't think I should go to lectures. And he said, why not? And I said, well, they make me real nervous. I thought that'll get him, right? Nervous. Remember, Dick? Nervous. And he goes, oh, what do you think you should do? I said, I think I should take naps. Well, for those of you who have been in treatment, I don't know. And I <laughs> he was the first Norwegian I'd ever met. We don't have a lot of those in Kansas City. 
and he had a nerve-wrenching pointing finger. It was about that long. And he took it and he shook it in my face like no person had ever done in my whole life. And he said something to me like, listen, whoever didn't tell you or why didn't you learn that it hurts to grow? Now you get out there, you shut your mouth, you open your ears, you sit in that chair and you grow, damn it. I said, yes, sir. And I did what he said. And I tell you, it just was wonderful after that, and that's not true. I did that. I did do everything he said from then on. He said, as I was leaving, I'm going back to Kansas City. And I said, what am I supposed to do back there? There are no treatment centers. This is in Minneapolis. And he said, go down on that. I said, well, just tell me exactly what it is. He said, don't ask, just go. So I asked, of course. A couple of guys, a couple of guys in my group, I said, I heard your wife is now on. How, how did she like it? And he said, one said, I don't know. I was so drunk. I don't know what she's doing. And another guy said, well, I think what she did was she went every Wednesday night and made coffee for drunks. I thought, okay, so I'm supposed to go make coffee now and do good, and then I'm going to be okay, right? Well, I did it. And I sat like Susie Slow on the back row, because by this time I moved to Minneapolis. And I sat like Susie Slow on the back row, and I did not say a word. And my name is Sandra, I passed. My name is Sandra, I'm really good at saying that. My name is Sandra, I passed. My name is Sandra, I passed. My name is Sandra, I passed. And the reason I did that is I was looking for other people that I thought were like me. And what I heard was a lady say, Oh, Jesus, I had a really bad week. My Cub Scout pack was really all over the house today. She had a Cub Scout pack. I couldn't put one foot in front of the other. I thought, that's like PTA. I'm not that functional. And then another lady said, Jesus, I really got angry. And I thought, well, I can relate to that. She said, of course, the last time was seven years ago. Do you hear what we were doing? We were getting very righteous, and we were trying to show our moral superiority to each other, and I quit. And I went to my bedroom, and I drew the drapes, and I stayed there for six months. I only did one thing different. I took a little blue book into that room with me called One Day to Come in Al-Anon. And I read it, and reread it, and reread it, and read it, and read it, and read it, and reread it, and I found seven pages that spoke to me. At the end of six months, I left my bedroom, and I went back to Al-Anon because I didn't know where else to go. And they had improved a whole lot. <laughs> In between those two people were some people that were saying some other kinds of things. You see, I wasn't listening to those other people. And I have been a grateful member of Al-Anon ever since. And I, do not, I am positive that I would not have had a recovery if it had not have been for that group and that organization. I guess what I want to say, because I work daily and hourly and I train professionals now to work with people, they're so caught in their dependency, so caught in their dependent relationships, sometimes in tremendous pain. Some of the people I see could not be in a group yet. Most of the people I see are functional enough to be in a group. But there's one thing I say to them very, very often. Let's learn to be gentle but firm with ourselves. We could say that perhaps to many audiences and many crowds and they go, oh yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> when we say that to each other as dependent people, we're, we're challenging each other to have courage to do something that is very, very difficult. Because I do not believe that most of us major in self-gentleness, sometimes self-indulgence, but not in gentleness coupled with also loving kindly kinds of firmness. 
So I will leave with you today. Let's all be gentle but firm with ourselves. Thank you.